0: Brandon. I've got my great co-host Dag with me. How you doing, Dag? I'm doing super, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. Uh, crypto's up. And
1: uh Yes, it is. Very know. happy about that, obviously.
0: Yeah, and uh looks like we're seeing like a mass adoption, like companies who um uh, i I think it was Uber, the the CFO was like uh, uh he was asked, like, you know, are, are you guys gonna get into crypto? And he said no, and the, their stock fell. I forget how many percentage points but it was uh it was it's like starting to crash so um i think we're getting to the point where it's like if if you're not in if your company is not not in crypto it's it's like the internet right like if you're not in the internet then um then your company won't exist and 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 i think it's going to be the same for crypto if you're your company's not into crypto you're you're not going to be around you're going to you're going to be blocked um My,
1: my yellow pages ad hasn't been getting much play these days i don't know what i'm doing wrong
0: (laughs) well it Um, it, it will it will
1: do do you think that this is like do you think it's like a fad kind of thing that just because it's popping that they're all getting into it or do you think it's actually like a thing that's that's hopefully gonna gonna stick around you know in, in regard to the big companies
0: um i can't say exactly but i know that they're feeling pressured and and that's because um that's because every you know after elon musk and um i think like 10 other really big companies have gotten into crypto and with Visa and Mastercard and PayPal, all of those getting into crypto, I think they're all kind of getting pressured. In, you know, um, pressured not only by questions, but but they're getting pressured into getting soft. Um,
1: yeah, and, making and, more mainstream. So
0: yeah, interesting times we live in. But um, but uh, you know, with that news clip aside, I think um, we're we're gonna uh, we're you know. We're all about pre-search on this channel. Um, they are our sponsor, but uh, but we really believe in their project: decentralized um, crypto search engine that doesn't spy on you, that um, that rewards you for searching. So um, so yeah, f- yeah, it's like free, free you yourself know, like Google, from from the Google they, uh, slavers, you know. Yeah,
1: <laughs> they they make money off of you using their product presearch. Like you make them pretty cool. So
0: you know. Take, yeah, you actually feel like a customer, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's pretty nice in there. Uh, yeah, the pre search token is uh is pretty interesting for sure. So definitely worth looking into. Uh you can check them out, pre dot org, uh or you can actually check them out through our site at dot nexus.com slash search. So do uh I guess we should inter- introduce our guest. You know, I feel like um I feel like uh, at like it's like um introducing someone at like a, like a regal event and like a, a ball or something, you know, with the uh the list here of uh, of you know credentials so i'm going to pick a couple of them out um but anyhow um on the uh, program here today we have raymond march he is a faculty fellow at the ndsu center for study of public choice and private Enter- enterprise an assistant professor at the ndsu department of agribusiness and applied economics uh teaches microeconomics history of economic thought and health economics um gets published all over the place. Uh, Research has appeared in Research Policy, Journal of Institutional Economics, Institutional Review of Economics, Journal of Healthcare and Finance, uh, and other academic publications. Uh, And finally, Raymond is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and the director of FDAreview.org, an educational research and communications project on the U.S. Food and Drug Administration regularly, blogs on health policy at the Beacon. Welcome to the show, Ray.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, Absolutely. you, uh, have pretty much been spending the last year, uh, probably, uh, eating, sleeping and breathing a COVID that sounds really terrible, but is that accurate?
2: <laughs> Hopefully not spreading it, but yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool, man. Cool. So, um, so yeah, we've done some, uh, we've done a few episodes, um, about sort of what all's happening and everything. And I thought it'd be really great to get like an actual professional who knows what they're talking. Um, so, uh, so definitely, uh, thanks for that. Um, let me get my questions up here. So, I guess I guess what I want to um, get started with is like I tell, tell me if I'm wrong here. There's like a COVID like every year, right? Like there's like a COVID 18 and a 16 and a 15 and and all that. It's just not like a big deal or we just don't hear about it. There are influenzas which can lead to pandemics that happen probably every five or six years.
2: You don't see an actual pandemic for probably every mm-hmm. 30 or 50 years. Like the last influenza pandemic we had was 58. And then, of course, there was the 1918 version called the Spanish flu. Then we had H1N1, which was a little bit ago, right? That's the swine flu. And now, finally, mm-hmm. we have COVID-19. But, yeah, there are coronaviruses, but they typically don't lead to pandemics. They typically don't hurt humans. So this one's kind of an okay, exception, so- but there are lots of diseases that could
1: lead to issues like these. Okay, so so you do think that this is this is, like, let's say worse you know even let's say maybe it's not you know for all the uh pomp around it maybe it's not quite that but you do think that this is worse than just a typical corona um covid thing that might come out you know on a yearly basis yeah i do think it's worse than the, the annual flu right, or the seasonal flu. but at the same okay. time i think that it's been handled poorly and a lot of that has to do with why it's been so bad sure sure um so um before we get into that i want just like like things like influenza, like illnesses, ILI uh, is, you know, typically known. It just seems like there's like a few things that goes around every year. They don't really put much effort into. Um, and I have heard like those things kind of have like gone away, you know, quote unquote, like we haven't had the flu or, or anything. Uh, I've heard that there have been changes in the way that they have actually been like recording deaths and stuff like that. Um, is that accurate? I mean, do you think it's affecting these numbers in a way that might not might not portray the situation as it actually is? Yeah, I believe so.
2: Uh, Fundamentally, so going back to just how do we measure deaths with COVID-19, right? They measure people who have died. If they happen to have had COVID-19, whether they were symptomatic or not, that's attributed to a COVID death. Gotcha. That's going to inflate the artificially. It also means that if you have influenza-like symptoms and they don't test you and you die of that, it's probably going to be attributed to COVID-19, not the flu. So like this year, you see a very, very low rate of flu mortality. Some of that is going to bubble over into COVID-19 mortality, and then some of that's just going to be that because of protocols, there's not going to be that much influenza like that. But no, just statistically or how they're counting the numbers, there is a reason to suspect that COVID-19 deaths are taking over
1: influenza deaths, and they're probably being over. So what incentives might a doctor or hospital or whoever's making these calls, what incentives might they have to do that? Um, I, I, are they getting like financially compensated or, um, and I'm not saying for, you know, lying, but you know, like if let's say they have more COVID positive patients, are they actually being financially compensated in some way? Yeah. If you're a COVID-19 patient, you're being treated in a hospital, you get 47,000 additional dollars. Oh,
2: if you put them on vacation, significant, it's about 77,000. So again, I mean, honesty aside, right? There's a very big financial incentive to say possibly COVID. Why not get the reimbursement for it? Right. And of course that's going to show cases. Right, right. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. It's all, I mean, despite the fact it might be a little slimy, it's almost like, why wouldn't you? You know, it's like, well, you're going to treat him anyhow. Why not get an extra 40 grand out of the deal? Um, so nope. okay.
0: Um, so okay, cool, man. Um, is this so is is cov like, um, how do you classify pandemic? Is my question, and and I guess the second one after that is, um, would COVID be in that classification?
2: There is an international measure for what counts as a pandemic, which is developed by the WHO. And it's usually a combination of how many cases have spread, how far have they spread. COVID-19 became an international emergency, I I believe, with 125,000 cases in China. So before it had entered South Korea, Taiwan, before it got to Seattle, they had declared it was contagious enough and fatal enough that this could be an international
1: pandemic.
2: So it's a combination of those kind of factors. Usually the who will describe it. But I mean, by those measures, yeah, COVID-19 is. Okay.
1: So so on to a little more like what we wanted to talk about on this is, uh, you know, talking smack about the state, right? Um, How, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting examples of ways that, you know, like the state kind of made this worse or prevented, um, you know, private industry from helping. Uh, One of the, one of, I think the, It's not a huge deal, but it's kind of interesting was like the, uh, the liquor companies and alcohol companies that wanted to step up and make like hand sanitizer and got told, you know, like they couldn't. (laughs) Um, and then I think got hit with a lot of like fines or whatever for becoming like a medical something or other. Um, do you have any examples like that? Or even if you have a better rendition of the way that went down than I did, uh, feel free to uh, let us hear it.
2: The hand sanitizer one was a particularly bad one because there was a shortage of hand sanitizer as mm-hmm. COVID-19 came along. our course, wife became a shortage. Hand sanitizer did, toilet paper, a lot of food you would want in an emergency situation. I think probably the best and most devastating was when the FDA wouldn't allow diagnostic companies to make COVID-19 test. I, I don't know if you've discussed this on the show before, but coming in well, really. oh, all right, I'll give you the spiel. <laughs> so coming yeah, in January 29th, first confirmed cases in Western Washington takes a couple of weeks, you get to New York, and you really have the first two major outbreaks in Seattle and New York City. At that time, if you wanted to develop a test for a novel virus, which COVID-19 was, it hadn't existed, you had to go through what's called LDT test. LDT testing was in progress, meaning the FDA actually didn't have a set standard for what you had to do to create a laboratory design test. That's what it stands, which means you have companies literally banging on the door of the FDA saying, we know how to diagnose this test. We believe there's a lot more COVID-19 cases out there than we're finding. We can make thousands of tests a day, approve us, and we can go figure this out. How bad is this going to be? How bad is it already? And the FDA said no. So you go through about two months of the pandemic, and there were literally 1,200 tests done across the country. By comparison, it really tells you nothing. (laughs) well, even worse, right? The, the test that was legally, you were legally allowed to do came from the CDC. And that test had manufacturing issues. So it was sending out false negative, right? So you don't know anything. And what you do know is leading you to a false negative saying it's not so bad. Right. I, you know, I feel. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no you. you. Say? Eventually, the FDA says, okay, the CDC test isn't any good. We're getting letters saying we have a test ready to go. Let us go and unleash these tests. And so they issued what's called an EUA, an emergency use authorization. And the way it worked with testing was, we can't handle this. There's a shortage of testing. We don't know how bad the pandemic is. You guys release the test. If anybody wants to use it, right, find a network, release the test, come back to us later, right, three, four months later, and then show us that it worked. And then a month later, there were 50 different kinds of diagnostic tests, including saliva based tests, right? So you didn't have to get the nose strip, right? They had developed different forms of testing. They were testing 115,000 patients a day compared to 1200 over a two month period. They had at home testing, which was eventually approved. You flash forward all the way to August and they had over 170 different kinds of
1: tests. They've
2: recalled two. And one of those Uh, was the CDCs. Yeah,
1: (laughs) that was going to be my question was, so out of all these tests, just, you know, made without, you know, explicit FDA approval, um, surely must some of them must have been bad or, or something, but you're saying that doesn't think it was really the case.
2: You would think theoretically you would need the FDA to approve all these tests, right? To make sure there weren't false negatives, but <laughs> actually the CDC... Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I feel like... <laughs> I mean, and it's funny too, because it's like you think that getting like a nice, pr- most probably inexpensive test that you could send to people's homes would be the way to do this for such a con- supposedly contagious disease. You know, to have to bring everybody together to a center that you got to you know, drive to and actually interact with somebody. Yeah, it just seems like mailing somebody, you know, a test in their home is definitely the way to go. And, you know, it's unfortunate well, that's it took what the long. market
2: eventually produced. Right. It was initially it's right. It's, OK, get the swabs in as many people as possible. So mass production, which wasn't happening. They solve that. Then eventually the lockdown orders come into place, right? So if you're in a rural setting and you need to get to a hospital, maybe you can't. Or at worst, right, if you go to a hospital and everybody there has COVID, right, maybe you've exposed yourself to it. Or if somebody Mm -hmm. didn't, maybe they were exposed to it. So of course, private enterprise would come in and say, okay, well, how in the world can we make sure you can take a COVID test at home? And so what several different companies did was they said, online questionnaire, send that to a physician, physician could be anywhere, right? It's just their network. Physician says, sounds like COVID, I'm sending you a test. Test comes in the mail. At that point, it was a saliva-based test, right? Get rid of the user error of shoving something up your nose. Mm-hmm. You spit in it, you send it back, and they were turning these out in- five to seven days where right? when COVID tests were taken two weeks, right? If you wanted to get them anywhere else in a hospital, especially, and then you got a test result. But all of that was because the FDA got out of the way. So it wasn't just that they made tests. That's awesome. They figured out ways to get
1: them to people in vulnerable situations. Mm-hmm. Distribution definitely seems like it's the, uh, seems like it's the issue with a lot of this stuff, you know, is actually getting a, you know, getting it out there. Um, I know that that's well, been a big what problem ex- with the, uh,
0: what I've experienced with the FDA is, is manufacturing and manufacturing is, is always huge with the FDA. Uh, that's how you, that's how you, that's how you pretty much halt production, uh, and you know, so, uh, but, um, but the way that they were, were regulating in the industry that I was, I, I don't really want to go into much detail about my background, but, um, but the way that they were regulating, oh, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it murder, but, um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, far behind that, but, um, I don't know wh- what, what have you, what, what have you seen, Ray, in terms of, um, like FDA regulations in terms of, uh, you know, but, you know, and you could do outside of COVID if you're, you know, a, a lot of people are, uh, have talked about COVID a lot. So, um, if you want to change <laughs> it up, you know,
2: what have I seen, uh, has the FDA committed, murder or at least (laughs) (laughs) well i would say yes but i mean for either but (laughs) (laughs) um
0: i guess i guess just to rephrase this um uh you know what have you like what is the best example that you've seen of regulations completely destroying something that could go out and save i mean you could there's 60 if not
2: more years of the FDA doing something like that. Probably the clearest example is beta blockers, which were a drug which people can take to avoid heart attacks, right? Or severe side effects of heart disease. Beta blockers were introduced in Europe some 11, 12 years before the FDA approved, which means that patients in Europe are getting beta blockers and the benefits of them. And now beta blockers are incredibly common, right? In the United States, especially, we have lots of heart disease and lots of heart attack. But that was a 10 or 11 year period where the FDA delayed approval when there was already significant evidence from other countries, which have their own sets of regulations, their own FDAs and modernized healthcare. So there was a good comparison, but the FDA said, no, we want our own sets of regulations. You have to go through our approval process. You're not going to be able to go through any kind of shortcuts. So that's 11 or 12 years where people didn't get beta blockers in the United States, which you could attribute to a number of heart attacks, right? Even if it's say 5% of people with heart disease, right, who were able to get it, that's thousands, right? Tens of thousands. Yeah. i You guys are getting sick of COVID, I'm sure, but I think here's a particularly illustrative example. So we just got the COVID-19 vaccine approved. There was and it's still hard for me to believe this, even though I've been researching the FDA for a decade, it gets approved, it goes through what the FDA said you had to do to be able to get an emergency approval to be used for people. Then there was a two-week period where they said, we want one more additional advisory board to look at. So that's a 14-day process where the drug is ready, they want to be super cautious, wait two more weeks to ask people, <laughs> right, from wherever they could find them, should we let this be shot into people's arms? In those 14 days you had about 1,700 people dying daily of COVID. So to the FDA, that was completely acceptable, right? For those additional two weeks when they had already set what procedures and told Pfizer at the time who was the first one to get approved, right? Moderna comes second. They had set the standards saying, if you meet these standards, we're gonna let the vaccine fly. Then they said, no, we changed our mind two more weeks. And so for every day they delayed 1,700 people died and the FDA was perfectly willing to make that trade. And here's the thing, there's lots and lots and lots of other examples where they did the exact same thing. So if you want to call that murder, sure. You want to call that being reckless or being overly regulatory? That's fine too. But the point is, the FDA doesn't look at these trade-offs realistically, right? Not from the standpoint of a patient.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a sacrifice they're willing to make, I guess. Um, <laughs> they're but, willing uh, to make. But... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> um, it's a uh, what? It what is it? Um, what's it called when a. Uh, when they allow somebody to like use a drug, because let's say they're dying, they have a terminal illness. So they allow them to use a drug. Um, you know, like even just the fact that that's even like a question, you know, that like, Oh, somebody's going to die. Should, if their doctor thinks, we, Hey, let's try this. You know, the fact that that's even a question that you would say, no, I'm not going to allow that. It's just insane to me. You know, there's two modes of that. One of them is called compassion use, which is okay. the FDA
2: says, here's an experimental medication, go through these hoops, get the approval of the drug provider, get the approval of the doctor. And then get our approval, and then yeah, you can try it as a last ditch resort to try to prolong it. The other one, which is more recent, is what's called right to try, and right yes, to try just—that's yeah, the more recent one. That one is terminal illness. Doctor says here's an experimental drug. If I can get the drug producer to agree to give it to you, then we can do. We don't need the FDA's approval. That was passed under President Trump.
1: Oh, right on. Um, so like some uh some other uh, big um instances, I think that are really like famous in the past. Like um, I've heard you talk about like um uh insulin and stuff before, which is pretty interesting. But I think a lot of people are really familiar with, um, was it, was it folic acid? Was that what it was? Um, the, um, for pregnant mothers to take, um, to help their babies not have uh, birth defects. Wasn't there something where it was like, they weren't allowed to the company that made it wasn't allowed to recommend it because it was considered medical advice. And it was something like it took like decades, um, before the FDA would allow you to say, Hey, this is good for you to take. And I guess, yeah, like that's know. a whole nother nasty area. It's what the FDA
2: allows you to say.
1: Yeah. So when, yeah. when the
2: FDA approves drugs or tries to get drugs in the approval process, there are certain things that prescribers, drug providers are allowed to tell patients or allowed to tell doctors and they really tightly regulate that. So for example, doctors can recommend drugs to be used for off-label reasons, which means the drug is approved for X, but I'm going to give it to you because I know it also helps you with Y. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to distribute information if you are a drug provider to a doctor unless it's gone through a certain stage of approval. So for the most common example of this, right, is that aspirin has not been approved for heart to treat a second heart attack. Uh, sorry, a second heart attack, right? But doctors have been telling people to take aspirin daily if you want to avoid a heart attack for seventy years. That's never been approved by the FDA, right? But that's common medical practice.
0: Wow. Um, what? Uh, well, before I get into my next question, um, we should go into our sponsor. Um, we're also sponsored by uh, yeah, Devault Cryptocurrency. Um, You can cold stake. um, You can get rewards uh, by cold staking. You get cold staking rewards through them. It's non-custodial. So, you know, you still have um, control of it. Uh, And to be able to do that, to be able to cold stake rewards on a proof of work coin is just... The technology is just baffling, um, but but that's how innovative that this project. And uh, they're working on DeFi as well as uh, privacy with with uh, what they call Terraform. And um, yeah, so check out our sponsor Deval. Oh yeah, and cold staking. Well, let me tell you, with their um, with their core wallet, it was super easy, like super user friendly. Um, I was able to to do it in seconds. Um, Even even my grandma can do it. And uh, so I thought, um, you know, I thought with how user friendly it is that it uh, that, you know, that was very nice and convenient. So um, but uh, but with that said, Ray, I guess um, you were mentioning like vaccines earlier. Um, what have we seen with like? I don't know exactly what my, you know. Do you think that? How do I want to phrase this? In my opinion, like we've never seen vaccines released this quickly, right? Um, at least I haven't. I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but uh, but um, you know, are there concerns for long term testing? And uh, you know anything that that people might want to consider before taking so i'm
2: not a medical doctor the the
0: big things i've seen
2: just in my research are that both of the current vaccines available right the moderna and the visor they can lead to anaphylaxis which is a severe allergic reaction i think you're seeing that in like 32 out of 100,000 patients so it's low but it's also i mean it's a risk that's being reported like on the cdc site so it's common enough that people are Interested in that? Other ones are kind of the more common symptoms. Like it's called one of the things you're also seeing is called COVID arm. So your shoulder will swell up, like you've got a tetanus shot, and that can be kind of painful. There's extreme exhaustion, fatigue. There's shortness of breath, like COVID-like symptoms. Right? Those are all kind of to be expected. Nothing I've seen says that the vaccine is particularly untrustworthy. I tend to take the perspective, at least initially, in one of two ways. One of which is we actually had the moderna vaccine ready in february of 2020 and it still took till late november to actually release it so given it was ready then maybe it could have gone some initial kinds of testings right or gone through some kind of a regulatory process but the fact that there was that much of a delay causing You know, 180,000 deaths means that you probably could have put that through a market mechanism saying if you really, really are worried about COVID, you might want to consider this and here would be the risk factor.
0: Yeah. The
2: The other way I tend to take this is those are two vaccines. There are 130 different ones being tested across the world right now. AstraZeneca's was one that was initially dropped from getting speedy approval by the Trump administration. That's being used in Europe right now. That doesn't need two doses and we're not seeing COVID arm and some of these other problems. And it's using a production method, which is actually a lot more reliable. So it won't have, you won't have antibodies for four months. You'll probably have them for six or eight. And what I find curious about that is they all started the project along the same time. Why, if you're worried about this vaccine, wouldn't you want to get the AstraZeneca one? Because that's been approved in the UK through a normal process. And that leads to the problem. Why doesn't the FDA want to import drugs? Well, I mean, (laughs) they have every kind of incentive, right, to favor the homers, right? The people who are producing locally, right? Do they have a close relationship? with they not the foreign producers, right? AstraZeneca being the example. So the way I tend to approach the vaccine problem is all vaccines have some kind of tail risk. The tail risk might be higher, right? When you're deciding factor your phase three trial, the big phase three trial, you when know, everybody has to go through, right? it was 14,000 versus a normal 30,000. If you're worried about that kind of risk, expand the pool. That's really the only kind of way to solve that problem, especially if you
1: want to get the vaccine quickly. But again, there, I think the FDA messes with that too. Um- yeah, I mean, they about so like they want to you know keep a uh, keep it with U.S. companies, you know, and it's like, well, what are regulatory agencies, but um, you know, uh, protection rackets, really. Um, but uh, but so with this with this vaccine, like that just seems crazy that like the you know, let's say COVID started, um, and then just a couple months later they have the vaccine. I mean, I don't really know how vaccines are made, but man, that seems fast. Um, why? What is it that? I mean, it seems like a from any standpoint a really massive logistical problem to get that much stuff distributed to people. And I mean, just manufacturing, it has to be a big, a big feat in itself. Were those the issues that, um, that kept it from coming out? Or was it blundering? Or was it political posturing? Or I mean, what, what, what do you think was the big thing for that, that made it take so long?
2: I mean, there's always plenty of helpings of all of that when you're trying to distribute something centrally. Mm-hmm. Just to go back to your first point, um, the last big pandemic before COVID-19 was called the Asian flu. That was 1958. Drug producers in the United States actually had the vaccine again before the Asian flu got to the United States. Oh, wow. That was quite literally. They got samples from an international agency, which happened to have a strand of the Asian flu. It's not a free market enterprise at that time. (laughs) Healthcare almost never has been. But they get the strand, they give it to vaccine producers, and they say, This is probably going to get to the United States. Hopefully not soon, but can you make a vaccine? And they had And they had distributed some 60 million doses of this thing by the end of. 1950, yeah, the first actual confirmed case coming in July of that year. So it has happened before, and we have done a better job even historically. And the Asian flu, for a maybe not as deadly as COVID-19, right? but it was a very serious disease, killing like 116,000 people. But to go back yeah, to it, it, how in the world do we distribute these kinds of things? Um, you know, markets do solve that problem pretty effectively. Yeah, <laughs> if you can have prices. Right. And in in healthcare, that's tricky, right? Because we don't know the prices of a lot of things because they're so tightly regulated and there's third party payments. And government props up the price of a lot of these things because they spend trillions of dollars, right, to distribute these drugs and buy them up for Medicare and Medicaid and things. But no, I think if you look at a lot of healthcare goods, those get distributed pretty well. If you go to a pharmacy and they didn't have insulin, right, you would be upset. But at the same time, right, how in the world would the pharmacy know one that, you know, that person is diabetic, they need insulin right then, what kind of insulin they would need, how many pens at that particular time, right? Markets do solve those kinds of problems. They're not solving it with a COVID-19 vaccine, and they haven't solved it with a whole lot of COVID-related goods. And I think that just comes down to government not knowing how to distribute goods, even when the goods are really, really effective or really beneficial and can help a lot of people. Government has no idea where the flare-ups are gonna be. Government doesn't know the expertise of the doctor. Government doesn't know which hospitals are overwhelmed, which hospitals have the really severe cases, how in the world they're gonna get care from a centralized agency even at the state level to these hospitals. Those are all things that are guided by the price system. And when you centrally plan distributing vaccines, even if you have enough, you're gonna have spoil, you're gonna have spoils, right? You're gonna have spillovers, you're gonna have mistakes. Like even last year, I don't want to talk too long on this, right? The goal was to have After they had got the two vaccines approved in late November, early December, there were enough vaccines to vaccinate 20 million Americans. An incredible amount of production, right? That's almost breathtaking how fast they can do that. They got to two, right? So 2 million were actually vaccinated. It's not because we didn't have the vaccines, it's because a lot of them were sitting in warehouses, spoiling because we couldn't Mm -hmm. figure out how to get them from the warehouses and where they should go, which would make the most sense to distribute them from, right? Hospitals, pharmacies, walk-in clinics. Right? You, you
1: can't know that if you don't have prices guiding you. And that that's the problem yep. we've seen thus far. I had uh, somebody say to me that, um, you know, that basically, you know, I, I was making that case that, you know, we should let Marcus decide this kind of stuff because, you know, I mean, yeah, you can make a case for all sorts of different groups of people being the first to get this. But what they were saying is, oh, all the rich people are going to get it first, you know. And I was kind of like, well, yeah, you know, but it's like, but then they pay the highest price and then, you know, then, of course, you know, that pays for a lot of the research and then poor people can get it later. And it's probably even safer the later doses, you know, because it might work out more kinks. And but, you know, it's just a lot of people just don't it's just evil if it's anything like that. Like, oh, the rich people get it first. So it's evil, you know, but but that actually can have a lot of benefits, you know, in the way that markets function. So, well,
2: I mean, if you're pro vaccine, right, if you believe this vaccine is going to help a lot of people, it almost doesn't matter who gets it first. Right. The point is they won't get sick and spread it. So, yeah, right. I mean, right. Billionaires do get it first. Right? OK, how many billionaires are there? Right. How about the millions of other doses? Right. That companies can make <laughs> profits off of. Right. Those will get distributed. And I mean, now who got it first? Right. It was the politician. Yeah, there's of arguments course. You, can, you know, OK, so healthcare workers got to get it. Maybe older people get it. People with more comorbidities can get it. Yeah, there's an argument you can make either way. Right. But if the government is distributing it. And they think it's a good product. Who's going to get it first? Well, the politicians
1: are. I don't see why that's so much better than giving it to a millionaire person. Right. Well, of course, they have to do it so that they can um, instill um, confidence in the vaccine because, you know, obviously they're taking it. So it must be safe, you know. Uh, (laughs) um, I think that's all I had on the uh, on the vaccine.
0: Um, I want them to be, be my Guinea pigs all the time. So, I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, they probably um, deserve a different top. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Do did, did so. you have a question, Brandon? Okay. I was just going to say, um, you know, this,
1: this gets kind of frustrating, right. Cause um, you know, people like, like you, uh, you know, do a lot of really good work on this um, on the, uh, uh, but let's say you and like, let's say like, like Tom Woods, and he has a young lady on um, Jennifer Cabrera. I think her name is um, a lot who does a lot of like, you know, numbers and charts and, you know, like, Hey, you know, look at this some of this like government reaction to this might be a little bit overblown and by that of course i mean you know lockdowns and things like that you know um but it's almost like it sucks because it's like who is that for you know it's like you know like i read your articles and i'm like yeah you know this is right on and you know i listen to you know tom show and i'm like yeah you know go get them but it's like the people who we need to reach are so like just fear-driven uh by this thing that it's really hard to have a rational conversation with anybody um i mean i don't know i don't know if there's a question in there but like <laughs> what um i mean what what do we do man uh, i mean hopefully um i mean i'm gonna assume that that you're that you don't think that government's imposing lockdowns on you know vast majorities of healthy people is a good thing um
2: no you know how do
1: we convince regular people of that oh, i'm sorry I mean, what was that
2: i think tom is Tom and Tom Woods and a variety of other people have covered that kind of an issue. I do lockdowns work. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of evidence that say no. There's some theoretical evidence that it might. Most of the theoretical evidence saying that lockdowns might help people really depends on COVID-19 being more like Ebola than it is COVID-19. By that, I mean like a very high percent chance that you're going to die, but there's also very little chance that it survives outside of the body and is super contagious. Mm-hmm. And that's not what COVID-19 is, right? So if it's a different disease, okay, maybe there's more of a case to stay in your home for two weeks. COVID-19 doesn't seem to be that kind of disease. But no, getting back to what you said, in a lot of these cases where we talk about facts leaning one way and people's opinions leaning another, I, I'm an economist, right? I tend to view things in terms of cost and benefit. Most mm-hmm. of the time, what I view when people faced with facts divert to opinions, which may not be correct, is that the cost of being wrong for them isn't high. Enough, gotcha. Which is kind of a weird interpretation, but the way I like to think of it is, so the individual who's on Facebook saying this jerk wasn't wearing his mask because he's trying to kill us all and things like that. If he's wrong about his opinion, what does it really cost him? Basically nothing. <laughs>
0: Basically nothing.
2: But politicians do yeah. that, too. right? If they can stoke fear, you know, I know you're a fan of Robert Higgs, right? Fear is the hardest, right. the hardest emotion to ignore. So yeah, if there's yeah. something that can qualm the fear, right, the belief that we can lock people down and we're going to have the vaccine soon, it's only going to be two weeks in two months and you guys get there. But if, as long as the fear keeps stoking, it's very easy to get people to take
1: bad ideas. But I it's also funny you that, mentioned Robert Higgs. I uh, I think about him a lot through all this with the ratchet effect. <laughs> oh, <God laughs> like no. How much of this is going to stick around?
2: <laughs> but no, I gent- it's a kind of a nasty way of looking at the world. But I also do believe right the cost of being wrong does get excessive. Yeah. So the cost of being locked down, even if you really believe that's the way to go, does become too high at some point. Right? You have to get out mental health declines, you have to get more food, the bank account gets empty, right? Those are really high costs. Mm-hmm. And I think you see a lot, of, especially where I am in the country, right? People are just ignoring the mandates. Sheriffs are saying, I'm not going to enforce this. Governors are saying, I'm not locking down any, right? Even Andrew Kumo, uh, Cuomo of all people, says, well, we got to get rid of the lockdown. <laughs> so the cost becomes yeah. high enough that people start to ignore it. And then when people ignore their overlords passing all of these rules and regulations and even if they continue to try to say, no, we have to be fearful, right? More masks and all of these issues, people eventually say enough. And then when they confront life, even with the fear and say, look, things aren't as bad as we think, right. Then the elites lose power.
1: Yeah. Do you, um, so, so I know out, out in your neck of the woods, um, there's a, uh, in South Dakota, uh, the governor there has been pretty cool uh, throughout all this, uh, which, uh, which is neat. Is it what's like, what's kind of like the temperature out where you're at? Like, and I don't mean literally cause I know that's awful, but, um, like, As far as like, yeah, like if, like if you go in a store, like would you say that like the majority of people are masked? I doubt you have an actual mask mandate there, but would you say that the majority of people are just wearing them or? We had a mask mandate for about a month, right? And that's
2: through the the entire pandemic. Basically, it wasn't enforced locally. There are Mm -hmm. stores just because they serve older patrons and because they are concerned about the health of their employees will say, okay, if you come into, walmart or costco for example you got to wear a mask other stores are like keep your social distance you should wear a mask if you don't want to that's fine but i think that speaks to something else too right if you really wanted to see mask compliance would you go to a public building or would you go to a private
1: right i uh it's uh it's funny it definitely varies a bit around here as far as you know people that wear them um and even like signs I've seen on stores everything from like wear it to like the government says we have to tell you that you have to wear it to like um we don't wear masks do what you want <laughs> you know I've seen that one too um yeah. how so how it's, effective
0: uh, I mean how effective are masks and I mean uh you know are there health risks By, you know, you know, wearing. There are health risks from
2: wearing masks, especially 24-7. They're probably pretty minor, except in outlier cases, right? But of course, if everybody has to wear them, you're going to see a lot of these outliers. In general, masks, they're more effective for third parties than you. Meaning if you have COVID-19, you put on a mask and you go into a public area. It's probably going to help someone else from not getting COVID, less so than if you wear it, then you will not get COVID. It's just from the evidence I've seen. I'm not a medical doctor, Mm -hmm. so I don't know the full details of that. But I also think, you know, if people genuinely are worried about COVID, right, and some people should be, right, for certain demographics, it can be deadly, then you would want to have a society and you would want to have markets and individuals adjust to accommodate, sure, right? right? So if businesses want to serve people and people really are scared, either through no fault of their own or legitimately to go to a store, you would want stores to say, okay, we're going to wear masks, right? And we want right. to keep that compliant so people don't go in there and terrify that people are coughing on the food, right, or whatever you're trying to buy. And markets and private enterprises really have done a much better job of this than public enterprise.
1: Oh, um, yeah. And you'll even see, you know, like I'll see like, again, like we were saying earlier, some stores, you know, push for it and some stores don't. It's like, man, you know, you can shop where you feel comfortable, you know, uh, which is, you know, which is, uh, which is fine. Um, one one thing that I think is kind of funny um, throughout all this is, uh, is like, if, you know, the masking and social distancing and everything helps, which, you know, obviously they're you know, we, there's ways in which you can, um, but like, why aren't we getting like a call that like, this is going to like, just end all respiratory communicable communicable diseases. Like, wouldn't this, wouldn't doing this if two weeks and everybody just stayed inside and wore masks for, you know, two two weeks or a month or whatever, and all this could go away, which I've been told by people. Um, why aren't they also saying, well, that'll get rid of flu, that we we'll get rid of all this stuff. Why don't we do this to get rid of all respiratory diseases? You know, it just makes me think that it's, you know, it, <laughs> it's just... I don't know, man, it's just not a not as effective as they as they make it out to be. You know, I just I just feel like this is something that, you know, it's here and we got to get through it again. I'm not.
2: No, and I'm not a physician either. But at the same time, I haven't seen a private establishment say that getting rid of masks and self-quarantining is going to get rid of COVID-19, right? There are other institutions which have made that argument again and again and again. I think the role of the private enterprise is to say to continue your life. If you're worried about risk, we'll do what we can to hedge it. And some stores will do it and some don't. And that's fine. Hmm.
0: All right. Um, I kind of wanted to uh, shift gears to economics yeah, go ahead. Um, since you've got such a, a great economic background, if, if that's all right with you, Ray. Oh,
1: sure.
0: So, um, I mean, economically, I mean, especially with like all the stimulus printed and stuff, like, you know, where's the dollar headed? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess that's my question. Yeah. Where's the dollar headed? Cause I mean, you can't just print forever, right? I mean,
2: you can't print forever. That's correct. And, Printing forever wouldn't solve anything because money is only useful to buy good, right? That could be gold money. That can be the fiat currency. That could even be big. Now, the interesting question with COVID-19 and all of the printing and you know, the CARES Act and the checks that everybody is being sent is if you suppress the economy and you don't let production happen, that means there's not going to be spending. Now, as the economy starts to open back up, and we're still on the fence about that, right? Some people are opening up. Other countries have reinstituted lockdown like this morning, Australia just reinstituted a lockdown in, in uh, Sydney, right? So we don't know exactly when all this nonsense is going to happen, but we're going to stop rather. But eventually, the economy will get going again. And when it does, there's going to be a lot of paper money out there. And when that happens, you're going to see inflation. You're going to see the economy restart, right? We, we loosely saw this again, sort of at the end of the Trump administration, Our unemployment did a dip, but then it sort of recovered. When that happens, eventually you have a, cur- a economy flooded with currency, which is going to lead to inflation. Inflation, I believe, has distortionary properties, especially in transition period. Um, and when that happens, people are going to flock to riskier events, right? Because inflation means that prices rise. The way to mitigate the risks of, imp- of prices rising is to store things in, or if you rather spend your money in something where the price will rise proportionately higher, which is riskier investments. So lots of speculation in the stock market. I don't know if you guys Frequent GameStop, you sort of saw that initially, right? Weird kinds of speculations with regard to that. You're going to see the price of gold go extremely high. The price of silver will go high because those historically are investments when you don't trust the local currency or you don't trust the monetary system. And that's going to be a largely speculative market. And I think, I mean, I had the potential to last two or three years while the economy tries to reset and figure out how useful is the currency. Hopefully, that wasn't too complicated. Sorry.
0: No, that was a great. That was a great. Uh, a great answer. Um, now, overall, like, where would you see production um, uh, production, and, uh, and and growth of, of the American economy? I mean, are, you know, I guess I'm kind of, uh, when it comes to economic, when it comes to even global economics, I'm, I'm kind of, um, unfortunately, pessimistic, but I'm optimistic that we have things like Bitcoin and um, gold and silver, but, uh, but, you know how do we kind of do you have any do we have any idea like how this could play out and you know i guess i you know maybe maybe i'm asking you to like look right <laughs> but um <laughs> i mean i can try yeah i mean so i guess i guess my question is is
2: is there's got to be consequences to what's happened
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely
2: is consequences going yeah yeah something along those lines
0: no there will be
2: consequences uh, I guess the answer to answer the first part, where do I see all of this going? So my answer with that, when I look into my crystal ball, when we look at history is that governments will do unspeakably silly things, which will have nasty consequences for the common, not necessarily for them or the elites, but for the commoner. Fortunately, markets are too complicated for governments to completely fuck up. I don't know if you like cursing on your show. That's how I tend to phrase it. But yeah, and what I mean by that is we have seen over the last 100 years, I mean, even almost going back to the industrial revolution, incredible progress and decay of disease and clean drinking water and lower infant mortalities and amazing progress in terms of human development. But that was also concurrent with, I mean, communism, Hitler the rise of the U.S. empire and all these things you would think would be horribly destructive. But the historical precedent is that progress right through human markets and individual action and incentives and ingenuity has always outpaced. So I think you're going to see a lot of serious problems in the U.S. economy, not just because of what we've done with the CARES Act and what we've done in response to COVID, but I think the current administration is on sort of a dangerous path with 50 executive orders in three weeks. I wish I could write that fast. I seriously do. But (laughs) So I think that's going to have some pretty serious consequences, but I also see the U.S. economy, if we can unshackle it, which I think we have to at some point, will outpace some of those things. Um, Short-run problems, my short list of that is that healthcare is going to become really, really, really expensive and a lot more tightly controlled, and that's both because of trying to reinstitute Obamacare and because of all of the influence we've had with the CARES Act on the U.S. healthcare sector. I think you're going to see gasoline become a lot more expensive, which is going to limit which is going to limit travel. I think manufacturing is going to be tricky because you have a lot of pro-union legislation that's probably going to come through, which is going to make it harder to hire people of lower skill who want to compete on lower wage, especially if the $15 minimum wage gets anywhere close to passing. And all of that's going to create a discount. But I mean, markets are robust to regulation. They're called the black market. And black market, I'm, there's some nasty things about black markets, right? You can spend... You have people specializing in breaking the law, running a lot of black markets, but markets still have to serve consumers, right? So I think you're going to see a rise in black markets, especially in the labor department. I think you could see a rise in black markets for drugs, right? Not just heroin, marijuana, like the historically illegal drugs, but also prescription drugs. There's a black market in insulin, for example, right now. But no, I, I think eventually three to five years down the road, a lot of those problems I talked about are going to be outpaced by innovation. And we'll look back and say, wow, the government did a lot of horrible things in 2020, but here we are again, right, improving.
1: That's that's excellent. You know, one thing like when I've had people, you know, something's like, oh, no, you know, um, regulations are good because look at how much we prospered in the last, you know, whatever. Oh, look after FDR, look at all this, you know, all the... Uh, you know, all the, all the great economic, you know, growth and everything. And of course they, you know, I'm sorry, let me be coherent here. Um, what I typically say to them is like, no, 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 no. Like all that, all that growth happened in spite of government. You know what I mean? Not like, you know, because of those regulations, it happened in spite of it, you know? And, and I just love the attitude, like you're saying, where, you know, we, we have technology that's markets will, markets will work and markets will, uh, markets will make this Markets will help improve things, you know, and just technology getting better is 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 very good for that. And I have a lot of hope for that. Um, One thing that it seems, you know, as 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 we try to take, you know, like oh, there's an issue with a a system like that, and we're gonna operate outside of it. One of the toughest, uh, one of the toughest ones that it seems to me is like the medical field because a it is so super highly regulated, but also it is something that takes a great skill, right? Like you don't want. Like you don't want to go see a dentist who operates out of a van, you know. Um, well, I don't know, actually now that I think about it. If he had a really nice van, and he like came to your office, your house and did work, that's actually that actually be pretty cool. Um, but you, you know what I mean. You know what I mean? You don't want to, you know, some skeezy dentist or something, you know, in a back alley or anything. Um, so I mean, do you do you have anything or any like ideas or anything on how how we might be able to make like decent medical care, but do it outside of you know the regulatory pur- purview. Um, you know, other than just going to Mexico or Tijuana and getting a uh, getting your surgery done, um, are there any particular industries or anything in the medical field that are that operate outside of that? Or, well, first I'll just comment on the idea that
2: you don't want to have someone in a van filling in your teeth. I've been doing a little bit of historical research on medical licensure, going back to even the eighteen hundreds, right when the AMA formed and they made doctors' salaries higher by putting them on a pedestal and kicking out a lot of minority doctors and. Doctors sure. that didn't have these credentials. Way back then, this is historical point, not really, it's tangential, but I think it's interesting. So when they first started enacting a lot of these laws, one of the ones they said was if you wanted to have a medical license to practice in Connecticut, New York, Boston, right, Yankee land for us from Florida, you had to get <laughs> your degree. You had to get a medical degree from a school that had a lab, a special medical laboratory. It turns out the only one in the Northeast at that time was Harvard, right? So you pretty much could Mm -hmm. only get your degree from Harvard at that time. But to get a medical degree from Harvard, you had to take nine classes, right, to get your MD or the equivalent of the MD back then. You could fail six of them. Oh, yeah. Okay. So So it it just mattered that you went to Harvard. Credentialism doesn't necessarily mean quality. Right, right. It means you did what you were supposed to do. It doesn't mean you're a wonderful doctor. Sure. Anyway, to answer your actual question, how in the world do we assure that people are going to want to opt out of the system? Are there examples of opting out of the medical establishment? There are a few. So a lot of times you can get dental care work done without insurance. There are examples of you opting out of the medical care industry by getting pay, or pay from pocket. So you can just mm-hmm. go there and they will give you a discount if you decide not to pay with insurance for some things. And again, that makes sense for them because otherwise it's a crap ton of paperwork to get reimbursed by the insurance companies. And that makes everything more expensive, right? The doctor has less time for his patients. You have less money, period. So physicians are already finding ways to opt out of that. There is the hospital run by Keith Smith, the Oklahoma Surgery Center, which will only accept money or Bitcoin. They are awesome.
1: Um, Yeah, they're Uh, really cool. No, he's he's a genius <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to compete on these models. Now, can he, is that a state, like, can he just get away with, get away with that, listen to me. Um, Can he just get away with that because, like, he's in Oklahoma, or is that just like, do they have state laws that allow that, or why would not seem more of that?
2: So Oklahoma has a unique sort of state law system where you can contract out physician work, and they're very, very relaxed on that because most of Oklahoma is rural, which means if you want to get physician access, they need to have physicians be mobile, at least within the state. But the way... I mean, he would know more about the details than me, right? I hope maybe you can have him on the show. That'd be great. But the way he tends- It
1: is on my list. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, the way I understand how it works is he will bring in a patient who needs some kind of a surgery and he gets patients from all over the world, right? And he brings them in and then he contracts out the physician to run the surgery because he's an anesthesiologist, right? So he doesn't know how to do some a lot of these kinds of surgery. And they will come in, they will have a contract, they will sign a dollar amount saying, I will perform this surgery for $10,000 minus expenses. Keith Smith goes and gets the anesthesia, right? cotton balls, whatever, scalpels, whatever the hell stuff you need. And then there's an agreement, no insurance, right? You have to find a way to cover this, right? Credit card, okay. Debit card, cash, gold, probably, whatever have you. But literally that's a pretty simple business. And the fact that he's getting patients from all over the world to come and work with him to do this shows that that is a viable option. All he really needed was a state which would allow him to contract out this kind of work.
1: Yeah, and I think I remember like the prices are like a quarter of what they like you know typically are in a regular hospital with insurance. You know, they're 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 much lower, and it's just like it's it's like a menu board. It's like this is how much a knee replacement costs. You know, it's this amount. <laughs> you know, or, or or whatever. And that's yeah, yeah it, it's it's really it, awesome, and it, and it shows know, on his website. He's
2: doing like bypass or sort of like complicated surgeries right for fifteen thousand. I had my wisdom awesome. last year with insurance, and it cost me like eleven thousand. So yeah. I compare yeah, it. I've
1: seen, you know, like the bills from like procedures I've had, um, you know, I have heart issues and stuff and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a two hour thing. It's like 40 grand, you know? Um, yeah. I fortunately, my cardiologist, like I've had times where I didn't have health insurance and like, she'll get me in there and like not print the results of the tests so you know it, i just have to pay the eight hundred dollars to walk into the office but not the five thousand dollars to you know for an ekg and all this stuff you know so um you know i guess some of them do kind of work work in there you know it's funny um i i'm thinking about it now and i'm like you know I'm like a uh, mob movies and stuff there's always like there's a vet you know a veterinary a, a veterinarian and that's like the doctor for the you know the underground people you know so they have an actual you know I mean, vet's pretty much a doctor, so yeah, that might be a good way to go. Well, I mean, um, health bills for the rest of your life, which you can't afford to pay, right? So you yeah,
2: could die, you could be in medical debt or medical bankruptcy, or you could see a vet. I mean, it yeah. sounds <laughs> people would opt into that. <laughs> Given the other two, it's not that crazy an idea.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and and don't get me wrong. What I'm about to say is going to make me sound like a like a crackpot. Like I have a ton of respect for you know doctors, and obviously I can't do that. But like um, I was reading uh, one of John Taylor Gatto's books, and I guess he was in like South America on like this hiking thing, and like broke like his hip or something. Like fell off a mountain and broke his hip or something. And they're in the middle like the you know not quite the jungle, but kinda. And it was like a medical student, like a like a like a nursing student or something, like pinned his hip, like. By reading a textbook, like on how to do it, never done anything like that before, and like pinned his hip, you know. And I mean, he didn't die. Like it wasn't the best job in the world, but it's just like, um, it's a you know, it's, it's I don't know. I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of like mystique around you know medical doctors where it's like you know you're getting in there and you're doing a job, you know. So yeah,
2: that's what the AMA. You know, I
1: don't. I don't create, right? So what's that?
2: That's what the AMA tried to create, right? It was I a mean, there's so many quacks out there and they have horrible mm. treatments, right? Yep. You need to go to Harvard, literally, right? to be able to treat right. you might be. Yeah, and they have it, the whole the, the certificate solved. of need thing. Yeah. even in your example, right? If you had an actual Harvard MD out there, what was he going to do in emergency medical? So he was not going to pin his hip. Is he going to have access to a hospital? Or what, would he, what would he have done? It's crazy different. Right, like, right. Yeah, probably just about the same
1: thing about as rudimentary as he could.
2: Yeah. And to get back to your question, though, I just recently saw a study. It was from the Journal of Emergency Medicine. And they were trying to take surveys of physicians saying, OK, who... What have you been seeing? How much of the cases do you get? Do you think you could have actually treated through telehealth? And they unanimously said about 40 to 50%. And that's emergency medicine. That's just not like going to a physician for a physical or a checkup or something, or I need a prescription because I'm sick. That's Somebody's trying to see you because they think there's a legit problem. Mm -hmm. So If you could have telehealth, right, which the technology how to do telehealth is very Easy. A lot of big insurance companies will use telehealth, so maybe you still need to have some kind of regulatory requirements for doctors. But if most of it can be administered
1: through telehealth, that's a way to opt out of the system too. And, and it seems so much, especially with communicable communicable disease is such a concern. Then that definitely seems like just the way to go for anything possible. You know, um, not to mention just the time and resources saved by not having to leave your house and go to a doctor's office for a few hours, et cetera, et cetera. No, and there are um, really may- private markets where they take physicians who
2: specialize in whatever. And they mm-hmm. say, we want to get you a medical license, not just in you know, Nebraska or Florida, but everywhere. And what they do is they take the doctor's credentials and they find ways to get all the paperwork done so he can practice license in any state. He sits back, has a telehealth service. He can charge $25, $30 a visit. He'll make a profit off of that. And then he can see people anyway. And there are literally private companies that exist just to do that. So it's entirely conceivable, right? That's another way to opt out of the system. It will create more competition, at least, right? Which will drive down
1: prices, even as creating. Yeah. The markets are yeah and just make access to doctors easier too so you know it's good for everyone yeah what um we're going about an hour here uh what uh
0: you got anything else brandon uh i think you pretty much answered all my questions so i uh yeah i had to i had to stop myself from going down like a couple
1: different paths here because we would have been here all night um there's right. just the just the just medical history and everything and especially looking at it through an economic lens is just there's a lot of it there and it's very fascinating you know um, definitely, I feel like all three of us kind of have a kind of have a special special place in our hearts for uh, for this kind of thing. So um, I would definitely like to do this again sometime, um, and maybe pick a pick a more fun topic. You know that we other than you know COVID stuff that we could uh, that we could stick to. I think that'd be pretty good.
2: There's no shortage of. Let me know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, the uh, I think it was uh, the Progressive Era by Murray Rothbard is really great, um, and he goes into some of that some of the early. Cartilization and cartilization attempts in uh, the medical industry, and uh, and it's really good. That book all around is really great. If um, anybody hasn't read it, uh, go check it out. Um, So I don't know. With that, should we get out of here?
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah, we can. uh, Unless there's anything else you want to cover, uh, Ray. I'll keep smashing the stick. Hell Uh, yeah, Um, uh, man!
1: Thank you so much for coming on, dude. I really appreciate it, Ray. Yeah, man. Um, man. Check out how. Go ahead and tell everybody how they can um how they
2: can follow your. uh, so for a lot of the stuff i've been talking about on this podcast visit fda review.org that's a project of the independent institute which i also write for i i blog there probably two or three times a month you can find my more academic stuff if you're interested. I just recently had a whole paper explaining how the FDA man mismanaged a lot of COVID nineteen issues. That's forthcoming. Now but you can find a version of that paper at my professional site. Just Google N D S U North Dakota State University, Raymond March and you'll find that. But broadly if you just Google Raymond March, you'll see some of my more popular writing and some of the other stuff I've done. Excellent.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh yeah I want to get you writing for the Nexus on like, uh, you know, black market, um, black market insulin and, and all that. But uh, but we'll, we'll see if I can do that. Smash the likes if you want to uh, if you if you guys want that to happen. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> with that, um, I'll try to convince them off show, too, for you guys. So but um, with that said, I'm going to finish it up with a quote here. Um, the first lesson of economics is scarcity. There's never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Thomas Sowell. Of course, next is out.